the last couple of years uh, on the road, and uh, we stepped back from the church, the last church that we started, uh, because we felt this was the most productive part of our lives was uh, what we gave to churches uh, in various places and countries. And so it's been quite an adventure every so often we wake up and wonder where we are or wonder why we're doing this. Uh, but then uh, God reminds us when he moves and we see the fruit of the kingdom of God around the world. And that's what I want to talk on this morning uh, after conferring with Alan, which I always do. <laughs> I have to remind you, Alan, of an occasion when the church was meeting at Sixth Form College, and there was two services, and the Holy Spirit inconveniently moved in the first service to the point where Alan came up to me in the second service and said, you have 13 minutes to preach. <laughs> and I finished on time. Depends <laughs> uh, which time zone. <laughs> Anyway, after conferring with Alan, I'm going to get the same message I did last week at Chesley Street. And if anyone happened to be visiting there last week, God knows you needed to hear it twice. <laughs> a very great theologian uh, who lived about 100 years ago called Abraham Kuyper uh, made this statement. He said, there is not one square inch of this planet over which Christ does not cry Mine. In the book of Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve the commission to be fruitful and multiply, to extend the boundaries of the garden to the ends of the earth, and they failed in that commission. God then gave Israel a commission, similar to be a light to the nations, to push back the boundaries of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, and Israel failed. And so God sent Jesus. And when Jesus in the end of Matthew's Gospel gave what we call the Great Commission, he's really only going back to the original commission that God gave in the Garden. So to go and make disciples of all nations is to go and push back the boundaries of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And Jesus said, the only... Uh, the most certain sign of the end that we can tell for sure is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to every nation, and then the end will come. And so God is in the kingdom business, and God is in the business of advancing his kingdom. The kingdom of God doesn't retreat, it advances. Now, uh, let me tie this in with another theme. Uh, back in the garden, Adam and Eve are described as doing two things. Uh, they're working and they're keeping the garden. That was their commission. And the same two Hebrew verbs reappear uh, <clears throat> at the time of Moses in the tabernacle. In terms of the duties of the priests uh, in the holy place and the holy of holies. And the idea is that Adam and Eve were priests to God in the garden. And so the garden was not just a garden, it was also a temple. God uh, himself was there 
and Adam and Eve were the priests. And then that, uh, the presence of God filled that place. And so when they were banished from the garden, and the cherubim were placed to guard the entrance and so on, God very mercifully and graciously immediately began to provide provision for access to his presence, in spite of the fact that we had messed up. And so uh, Cain and Abel were invited to a sacrifice, to worship God. And then later in uh, Genesis, we had various little piles of stones and altars and so on. And then uh, Moses has the tabernacle, and Solomon builds the temple. And we have this little cube-spaced place where the presence of God uh, shows up. But only one man, once a year, is allowed to access that. And so the presence, and that's why, by the way, in the uh, temple, there's all these uh, pomegranates and gourds and uh, the uh, tree of life, uh, sorry, the seven-branch candelabra signifies the tree of life, symbolizes it in the garden, and the pomegranates, the gourds, and all those things refer to the garden. And the cherubim over the ark, which guard the ark, are the same uh, uh, same idea as the cherubim guarding the place, so that we uh, there's limited restricted access or zero access back into the garden. And so, uh, what you've got is uh, a kind of a duplication in miniature of the presence of God, but mm-hmm. contained within that uh, little structure. And so the storyline of the Bible is the loss and the restoration of the presence of God. And on the day of Pentecost, uh, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 4 and 5 and 7 and 14, if you read it, you can see we get a glimpse into the heavenly temple, same as Isaiah did in chapter 6, where he saw uh, into the presence of the council of God. And that heavenly temple exists that is the place of the kingdom of God. That's where the kingdom of God is real and is operating. So the kingdom of God existed before uh, the universe was ever created. The kingdom of God exists now. The kingdom of God will exist into eternity. And this world exists temporarily. And the kingdom of God intrudes into this world uh, in the form of God's presence. Which is why it's so important to access the presence of God. Because to access the presence of God is to access the power of God. And without the power of God, the kingdom of God is not going to move forward. And in fact, the kingdom of God is the power of God. And I'll get to that in a minute. But on the day of Pentecost, that temple that we see pictured in the book of Revelation, where all the saints, the 144,000 and so on, are worshipping, in some measure, that temple fell out of heaven onto the city of Jerusalem. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been in a place where the presence of God has fallen? I have. And it is an incredible thing to witness. I long for the presence of God. I, you can accuse me of being an experientialist, but I want to experience God. The Bible talks about knowing God. To know is a form of intimacy in the Bible. It doesn't mean having information about God. You can go to church and get information about God, but I want to go to church and know God personally. 
I want to experience his presence. I just don't want to know facts about God, even correct facts about God. I want to know God. Thank you, somebody brings it <laughs> And so, uh, so, and the good news is, in terms of the presence of God, if we reach the end of the story, the last two chapters bring the fulfillment of the first two chapters of the Bible. So the garden temple is completely restored in the new Jerusalem. And you get the tree of life, and the same rivers in Genesis, the precious stones, and the presence of the Lord God Almighty in the land. There's no need for a temple. And all of us are there as priests. Uh, and that is the, that, that's what breaks into history on the day of Pentecost, is that instead of one person once a year being able to access the presence of God, all of us become priests and ministers to God, and we're able to not only access the presence of God, but the Bible says that we can take the presence of God. So we become, in effect, one man, one woman, mobile tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. That's the most extraordinary thing. I can't get my mind around it. But it accounts for the fact that I can pray for somebody who's sick and they're healed. I can pray for a woman who's been told she can't have children, and all of a sudden she does have children. I can prophesy or give out information to people that I never did in the natural, and it's accurate and true, and God does something in somebody's life. It's got nothing to do with me. It's got something to do with, it's got everything to do with the fact that I carry around within me the presence of God. Now, I'm being very, uh, I mean, transparency, anything I've talked about before the service, transparency is one of the most important things in Christian leadership. Because we carry this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay pots. We, the, the humblest form of earthenware of the day. That's the phraseology that Paul uses there in writing to, uh, second, in Second Corinthians. Um, we're, we're transparent and honest and open in the fact that we're very weak and vulnerable people. I won't talk about that in a minute. But all the more is God glorified because People look at it and say, well, it can't be David or it can't be Alan. No due respect. It's got to be God. And so, uh, I make no apologies for the fact that God uses me or God shows up in my life to help people because I know full well that it has nothing to do with me at all other than the fact that I have said yes to God. So, you know, if you want to be used by God, all you have to do is say yes. You can say no and miss out. Like we were reminded by the brother that came up and talked to us about uh, receiving what you believe and doubting and going without. But God requires us to be co- or calls us to be co-laborers, which means we've got to cooperate and say yes. But once we've said yes, then it's God that does all the doing. Christianity is not about us running out and doing a whole bunch of things. It's just about a bunch of helpless, hopeless people saying yes to Jesus. And then he shows up. Now, uh, another theologian a long time ago, and this was a Catholic guy who was disillusioned with the institutional church, and he made this statement, Jesus preached the kingdom, but he got the church. And sometimes, in honesty, we feel the same way. The kingdom is a great thing, 
too bad we have to put up with the church. <clears throat> and we've become disillusioned with the human dimension of Christianity, and we forget, of course, that we're part of the problem. If you ever find a perfect church, I'll wreck it the minute you join it. The problem is that, or the fact is, that the church, in all of its weakness, is still the only instrument that God has to reach people for Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the problem with church, and with our experience of church, comes when church becomes divorced from the power of the kingdom, and all we're left with is us as imperfect people. We desperately need the power of the kingdom. And when we begin to lose it, <clears throat> disappointment sets in. <clears throat> Disillusionment sets in. And that's a killer. Now, I think we need, if we understand the relationship between the church and the kingdom, because they're not the same thing at all. If, but we need to understand the relationship between them. And if we do, and understand what the kingdom really is, then this will help us. So the kingdom of God is not like an earthly kingdom. It's not a piece of land that has boundaries around it. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. It's the power, supernatural power of God. That's the kingdom. It expresses, that kingdom expresses itself in eternity through how God rules and creates universes and rules in his heavenly temple and all those things, but it's all about the rule and reign of God himself. The kingdom has got nothing to do with us. It's totally, it existed before we were created. It exists outside of our capabilities and experience now, and it will exist into eternity. The kingdom of God would exist whether we had ever been created or not. It's, it's something that is uh, above and beyond who we are, but the miracle is that God breaks into history, and I tried to illustrate it through this um, progression of the presence of God, and most of all, he broke into history in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, so that the kingdom of God starts to flow through us. We can't control the power of God. We can direct the power of God. All we are are channels of the power of God. And if, like some people, we want to access the power of God and, and become like a, a great big sister containing it all, we'll just, that God will turn the flow off and we'll stagnate. We're meant to be conduits. We're meant to be channels, the Bible says. We're meant to be rivers through which God flows. And as he flows through us, he brings life to us. Someone said to me, well, you know, where, where, where is the time that you're most refreshed? Well, the time that I'm most refreshed is when God is using me. I mean, you can get refreshed going and sitting on a beach somewhere or well, whatever, but the time, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Matter of fact, the last church I was in, the, the pastor sent me eight, four, set us eight 14 hour days and then said, I'm going to Mexico. <laughs> I said, God bless you. But <laughs> uh, you could do that, that's fine. But the time that I think I feel the most alive is when I'm laying hands on somebody and something is happening. Or when I'm prophesying to somebody. Or when God is just using me in somebody's life. Because the river is flowing through me. And the river can flow through you just as much as it can flow through me. 
So the church is built through the exercise of the kingdom power of God through us. And so we need to access that power. But it's given to the church. Now the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who would establish a literal kingdom on earth. They were expecting Jesus to come in the form of um, a, a later, greater version of David and Solomon who would reestablish the kingdom and rule peoples of the world from the throne in Jerusalem. And even the disciples got carried away with that. They were wanting, you know, places in the right hand and the left of his cabinet or whatever. And um, they were devastated when he was crucified because they said, and wrote to the man, we thought he was going to restore the kingdom. They, they didn't understand what the kingdom was. Jesus tried to point it out. He says, the kingdom of God is not here it is or there it is. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Um, Jesus proclaimed nothing but the kingdom of God from the very beginning until the very end of his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. He sent the twelve out. He said, preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent seventy-two out. He said, heal the sick and said, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Wherever Jesus preached the kingdom, or his disciples preached the kingdom, signs and wonders and miracles occurred. But he made a distinction between his disciples and the kingdom. He said, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and I'll give the authority of the kingdom to you. He's talking about Peter, not in the sense of the first pope or anything like that, but simply as a representative leader of that group of disciples. He says, I'll build my church, and I'll give you the power of the kingdom. Two separate things. It's the kingdom that creates the church. Without the power of God, all you've got is a religious institution. And there's tons of them around. But when the spirit of God begins to move, then you've got church. But if the kingdom creates the church, Jesus said the church holds the keys of the kingdom. Well, what that means is, it's through the church, which is through you and me preaching the gospel, witnessing to people, going out and praying for people, and all the things that we do as church. It's through our doing that that we open the door for people to hear about Jesus and enter the kingdom. So the church is indispensable as the only way into the kingdom, but the kingdom is indispensable because it's the only source of power for the church. So somehow, we get, have to get the two working together properly. And in my opinion, the church, particularly in our type of culture, which in the West is very rationalistic, we've been tainted by centuries of teaching that what is real is only what you can access with your five senses. Go to uh, Africa, go to Asia, you'll discover that people have a much broader view and deeper understanding. But in our, you know, we think we're just the these, these understand everything. But in the spiritual world, we don't. And so Paul says, we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And he uses two words in the Greek language. The things that are seen, it's just normal, ordinary eyesight that we see them by. But when he says, we look not at the things that are seen, but of the things that are unseen, um, he's using this, he's using a second word where he says, in order to see the things that are unseen, he uses the word scopao, which is like a telescope or a scope and a rifle or a microscope. 
It's, it, it is an intensely focused uh, form of vision whereby you can see things that you can never see with your natural eyes. So he says there's two forms of vision. Anybody can see what's around us. Anybody can see the people that are here this morning, the chair that you're sitting on, and so on. But that type of ordinary, rational vision or understanding is not going to help you see into the invisible realm where the battle is really going on. We need spiritual vision. We need this second form of vision to see this. And you have to have that kind of spiritual vision and understanding from God in order to gain access to the power of the kingdom. And without the power of the kingdom, all we've got here is a bunch of imperfect people and we'll start bickering and being disappointed with one another and picking faults with leaders because you always can find a fault one way or the other, even in such perfection as Alan Bell. <laughs> and uh, and you'll walk out and you'll look for another church and you'll have the same problem there because church is imperfect. Because guess what? Church is just you. That's the problem. Well, Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesians that they would know the power of God by which Christ was raised from the dead and seated in his right hand far above all rule and power and dominion. And he's praying in Philippians that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And like I said, to know means to know experientially. So Paul wants us to experience and be convinced of the power of God. He wants us to know personally and tangibly the power of the kingdom. See, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God did two things. Number one, he raised Christ from the dead and put him in a place of authority over all creation. But number two, he made the power by which he did that available to you and me. And so this incredible thing happens where the same power that raised Jesus physically from the dead and broke the power of death and hell is somehow operating within me. That's the one man mobile tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Power. And the devil will do everything he can to persuade you otherwise. That's why we have always have a movement that says, you know, miracles cease, they don't exist anymore, God doesn't, God doesn't move supernaturally, and so on. Because the devil wants to erase the power of the Holy Spirit from the church. The devil wants us to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. The devil wants us to... Uh, say that the Holy Spirit is just a, a, a piece of doctrine written down on paper, the fact is, and I know it's anthropomorphic language, which means it's human language used to describe God, but the Bible says that God is on the throne, Jesus is at his right hand, but the Holy Spirit is God on earth. So if the Holy Spirit is airbrushed out of our theology, we ain't got no God on earth anymore. God is not here. And so we need to fight. I will never, excuse me, I will never apologize for the Holy Spirit. 
or for the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit chooses to interrupt our services, he is welcome. As he was this morning. Because it's not really an interruption. Because he owns the place. (laughs) If the Holy Spirit chooses to tell me to do this or you to do that, we need to create an environment where we're open to that. The Holy Spirit will disrupt and overturn things. I remember when the power of God invaded this little... uh, industrial unit at the end of the runway at Toronto Airport, but 25 years ago now. And I first walked into these meetings and everybody was laughing. You could hardly hear the preacher. And I thought, this is very out of order. Then I realized the Holy Spirit was in the laughter because people were being set free. People from all over the world were coming. Pastors were coming with, I don't mean to be sentimental uh, about this and go back to the great times in the past, but pastors were coming with letters of resignation in their back pocket. Bill Johnson is one of them. Heidi and Roland Baker. They were finished. They were kaput. And God met them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we wouldn't have Bethel today if it wasn't for that, as it exists. Wouldn't have all those 10,000 churches that they supplied in Africa. Young man from this congregation, Dr. Akers, went with his wife and led the ministry school there for three years and saw I probably said it before. I'll say it again because it's so good. He saw signs and wonders and resurrected even a young boy resurrected from the dead. That's a young man that came out of this church. And so uh, and and if, but I remember John Lyra always used to say probably still does say uh, and he was the pastor the, the pastor all of that, but he said where there's no oxen in the stall there's no mess. It's quotation from Proverbs. John Wimber used to say it all the time. Don't know who he is, study your history. Uh, so, when the Holy Spirit comes, guess what? Things get messy. We, we lose our order a little bit. Anything may happen. I want to be in the church where anything may happen. How about you? I, 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 not only do I want to be in church, but I want to see people sent out onto the streets and into the schools and the colleges and workplaces to see all that happen there, too. That's what we want. Will it get messy? Will people with a lot of problems come in? Sure. That's what church is for. Because guess what? As I said, church is imperfect people. Why not just add a few more? You want to know the difference between a small church and a big church? A big church has more problems than a small church. (laughs) That was a revelation. (laughs) And we need faith. Faith is what releases the power of the unseen world into the seen world. Now let me encourage you. Faith is not an intellectual commodity. So if you have uh, a few doubts, uh, you haven't lost your faith. You know, if you're not 100% certain that you can do something, you haven't lost your faith. Faith's not an emotional feeling. So if you're feeling a bit down this morning, you haven't lost your faith. Faith is just the heart cry of the believer for the Father to equip us with kingdom power. Some of the times God has used me when I felt lowest in my faith, just to remind me. You've ever been in a situation where you're so discouraged and you're having all that of a penny party and I'm just speaking not autobiographically, I've never experienced anything like this myself. <laughs> but I've heard people tell Ian Portmine, as a matter of fact, Sherry, you know, he was having a penny party. No, he wasn't. Anyway, yeah. Um, and so, 
Just at the moment when I'm having my pity party, God sends someone along, and I've got to pray for them. And, you know, I put my best, happy, clappy, charismatic face on. I'm feeling absolutely miserable. I'm thinking, well, I really would probably go to lunch and pray for this person. Uh, but I do pray for them, and then God does something amazing. And I say, wow, praise God. You know, <laughs> and, and I think, God, you know, how do you even use somebody as dumb as me? Nobody say amen. <laughs> but that's what God does, isn't it? Just the moment you're, you're most grumpy, you've got to find the sand on the way to church. God uses you in an amazing way. It's incredible how God does that. But we need. Now let me just give you another little piece of teaching here. Um, I'll look at my watch, which doesn't mean much because I can't remember what time I started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me give you an helpful piece of teaching here uh, on the nature of faith. One of the problems with the prosperity faith teaching is, uh, and I wrote a blog on this recently, like don't throw the provision baby out with the prosperity bath water because you can, you know, but the problem is that um, there's two kinds of faith in the Bible. There's the normal persevering faith. Study the life of Abraham. He had ups and downs. God kept coming and promising, then nothing happened. Abraham went into a grump, you know, and Sarah too, they'd be mad at God, and in a downer, then God would come again, they'd be up, and then they'd be down, and all this process goes on. And that's persevering faith. And Abraham is held up in Romans chapter 4 as the model for us. And so the journey of faith is not living six inches above the ground, although I could do with another six inches. But the journey journey of faith is not floating, you know, in some place where you never have any challenges and you're always just God's man or woman of faith and power for the hour. That's not the journey. The journey of faith is usually hard slogging. It's ups and downs. It's having highs and lows. It's being disappointed. It's praying for things that don't happen as much as you pray for things that do happen. It's just plugging away. That's what the journey of faith is. But then God comes and he does what's described in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and he gives you a gift of faith. Now let me illustrate the difference. Peter, uh, one day, uh, and this is a story we all remember. In Acts chapter 3, he goes to the gate of the temple. He has a great charismatic moment. And he waves his coat jacket over the beggar. And he says, silver and gold have I done, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the miracle occurs. The whole city is uh, seized with um, uh, astonishment at what God has done through this ordinary man. But let me remind you that Peter walked past that man, by my estimation, hundreds of times. He went five times or whatever a day to pray by the same gate into the temple, past the same man, because the Bible says he was laid there every single day, for months or for maybe several years, whatever the chronology of the book of Acts is. Peter went past that man hundreds of times before ever, without ever praying for him. Or if he did, nothing happened. But that day, he had a gift of faith. Now the problem is, 
and this is the problem getting back to the faith message, that it's preached sometimes as if we can live every day by exercising the gift of faith. So every single problem in your life, you look at it, you name it, and claim it, and it's going to happen. But it doesn't. Mm. And so we get disappointed and walk away. So my uh, daughter and son-in-law, our daughter and son-in-law, Katie and Josh, have had uh, a real battle the last year, and I appreciate some of you have been praying for them. Uh, he's set up his own business in digital communications. I don't even understand what that is. But uh, I try to appear, so I do. I'm still at the point where when our last uh, son went to university, I didn't know how to operate my phone or anything. I mean, I always just called for them <laughs> to help me. And I didn't have any help. Fortunately, my one daughter moved back. They do. <laughs> With her cat. So, uh, where am I at? <laughs> okay. Uh, our son-in-law, Josh, and his digital marketing business. And uh, they are the most giving couple. They have laid themselves out for God. They've, they've uh, just sacrificed in a number of ways. And done, uh, but God has them right on the edge. And we pray and pray, and God provides, and they're at the edge God provides again. And I get kind of frustrated with God. Like, Can't you just, you know, fix this problem once and for all so I don't have to pray? And God say, well, I want you to pray. That's why I'm <laughs> So, you know, the story is, this was a couple of months ago. We were in the United States. And this, and I'll get back to my son-in-law in a minute. Um, this, a young lady in the congregation came up and she had had multiple miscarriages. And every time she got to four or five weeks or so, and then never had much past that, and miscarried. And she came up to us in the middle of the worship time with tears streaming down her face and said, I'm pregnant again. I've taken her test. She's a nurse. She knew what she was talking about. And uh, I, I'm just, and I, I think she said, I'm starting to, to bleed. And so here we go down the same road again. And Lane and I prayed through. There was lots of weeping and so on. And we finished the service and so on. The next morning, I get a message from my son-in-law. And I said, I get back to him. And he was not pregnant. That was the good <laughs> But he had another crisis in his business. And, uh, you know, there, there's no hope now. Uh, he can't see any possible uh, contracts coming in. Um, he's got no irons in the fire, and they need some money. So that was that. Anyway, so I was kind of thinking about these things and whatnot, and feeling kind of discouraged. And I got into my car, and I was going down the road to the church, uh, and it's like five-mile uh, drive, five minutes, you know, five miles, 15 minutes in England, five miles, five hours in India. But anyway, in Michigan, it's Five miles and might even be four minutes, who knows. But anyway, uh, I got into the car. I had that much time to pray. And I always, I always advertise the value of these arrow prayers to the point where I get correction from my wife. And I have to say it now every time. Uh, I'm not discouraging people from praying regularly for longer periods of time. I'm just saying if you've only got a couple minutes, God still actually is able to hear your brief prayer. 
and get lost in that. You don't have to wail at him for an hour or talk to him for an hour, but it's good if you do. All right, I'm balanced out. So, yes, we're all right. So, uh, I got in the car, and suddenly, and I got aggravated. And suddenly, I got to get it. Okay? Where did it come from? I don't know. And I said, Lord, I am asking for my son-in-law to get a contract today. And I'm also asking you to save that baby. No more miscarriage. And I thought I had said. And I went my way. That night I made a message from my son-in-law. David, I got two contracts today. <laughs> the next day I went to another meeting in church. The news came through from Sarah. That's her name. My pregnancy hormones have gone 400% in the last three days. And she's on Facebook now, like this. <laughs> we see miracles all over the place with babies. Just amazing. And funny stories as well. But that's the power of the kingdom. Mm. But, but most of what we do is the persevering faith, right? And that's valuable because guess what? You have to persevere through till you get the gift of faith. Peter had to go, if Peter had given up on God and stopped going to the temple, he would never have met the beggar. Right? Mm -hmm. If I had walked out and given up on God, I would never have been in a place where I was willing to pray and God could give me a gift of faith and that baby could be saved and my son-in-law could have another contract. So you've got to fight this battle. We're in a battle. We have to, you know, when you become a Christian, I am winding this down, Alan, don't worry. When we become a Christian, we're placed in a battle. It's a supernatural battle. You have a target painted on you the minute you get saved. Now, the devil doesn't come along and say, uh, well, uh, here's Joe Blow, and he belongs to this certain type of church. They don't believe in the power of God. They don't believe in the supernatural. They think that all those 2,000 years ago. So therefore, I'll just be nice to him. I won't use my power against him. I'll just calm it down a bit. No! The devil doesn't operate that way. He says, there's an easy target. I'll take him out. See, you need to access the power of God because you're fighting a supernatural battle. There are demonic forces, and I'm not, I'm not painting the devil to be bigger than God. I'm not seeing demons under every. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying we're in a battle. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a battle. There's, there's a power coming against us, and we got to fight back. Do you feel weak? Yes, because you are weak. But the power of God is strong within you. You've got to persevere in faith. One day I got so discouraged. We've been through a mess in church. But you see, we never get up in church. There's always a mess in church of some sort. But just don't get up. We had a mess in churches 20 years ago. And I was so discouraged this one morning that I went to take the garbage out. And I thought, I don't even know if I can get to the end of the driveway. That's how low I felt. I'm just being honest. And I felt God spoke to me. 
Then it wasn't a great prophetic word, go raise the dead or something. It was put one step ahead of another. <laughs> and if you do, God's very practical, isn't it? You'll get to the end. You'll get to the end. And I did. And somehow things turned up from there. And I've never forgotten it. Uh, Elaine calls it the laundry principle. She was in a similar predicament one day, and God said, just do the laundry. And then the next thing, you'll have strength to do the next thing. And sometimes we have days and seasons like that. Just fight. Be more persistent than the devil. Every time you get discouraged, just cry out to God for his help. Then we need the power of the kingdom if the church is to fulfill the commission that God gave it. Going back to the beginning of what I said, we're supposed to push out the boundaries to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to disciple the nations. The kingdom of God is all about power. And the Holy Ghost came at Pentecost and disciples received power. Paul said the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The angel said to John on Patmos, now come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. We have a battle today. The unseen power of evil is drawing people after every deception the enemy can throw at us. Only the power of the kingdom will suffice for us to take our stand and to declare that every piece of ground on which we stand Jesus Christ cries, mine. Mine. It belongs to him. This place belongs to him. The place across the car park belongs to him. The entire city belongs to him. This nation, no matter what mess it's in politically, which, forgive me, but it isn't a mess politically. But no matter what the state of it is, Christ is still crying, mine. It belongs to him. So fight for your country. Fight for your city. Fight for your community. Fight for your place of work. We were in, invited to go through, asked to walk through a school in the northeast of, of a week or a couple of weeks ago by a, a brother who had been appointed uh, to a position of authority in it just to pray and ask God for wisdom. And he said, I'm the only Christian in a staff of 135 people. But that, but I've got God with me. Let's see what God's going to do. <laughs> see, that's, that's kingdom. That's kingdom. And I said to him, I, I said, you have an apostolic grace in the world of education. Because those giftings exist in business and in education, not just in church. We need to release apostolic and prophetic and teaching gifts into this world to take it for Christ. Every one of us is to pray the prayer Jesus taught us. And he boiled it down to this, didn't he? Let your kingdom come. That means, let your will, as it's being expressed in the unseen heavenly realm, become real here in the seen earthly realm. And as you pray that prayer, let thy kingdom come, you also got to be willing to become part of the answer to your own prayers because God says you are ambassadors, doesn't he? An ambassador represents a kingdom. And that's who each one of you are. As a matter of fact, there's no higher calling for you 
as sons and daughters of God, to be and to be ambassadors of the kingdom. Let your kingdom come. Let it come. Let it come in your life. Let it come in your family. Let it come in this church. Let it come in this community. Let it come. Take every piece of ground on which the sole of your foot treads, like God said to Joshua. Because Jesus is crying mine over it. Let's stand together. I just invite you to make uh, a response before I give the lead back to Alan in your heart. In a moment, I'm just going to ask that we take a, a, a minute of silence, a few seconds anyway of silence, and, and I'm asking you, uh, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you right now? Uh, 39 or 38 years ago or something, uh, I was a young man in a meeting at this church, and I stood up and said, the Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you right now. And God spoke a supernatural word to that young man that one day, even though he was a brand new Christian, and had, uh, that he would be a leader, full-time leader in a large church that he wasn't even part of in a total different part of this country. And today he's a very significant leader in that church because he heard the Holy Spirit speaking to him as a 19-year-old new convert at the other end of the country. Now, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you now in response to what I've been saying. I have no idea what he wants to say to you. It's a transaction between God and you. But I am asking you now, open your ears for a minute and listen and hear what he says about his kingdom in your life.